Welcome to the Faith Connections Podcast, a partnership between the Foundry Publishing, Nazarene Discipleship International, and Holiness Today. Welcome to our study this week of Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. My name is Scott Rainey. I serve with the Church of the Nazarene in the area of Nazarene Discipleship International, or NDI. This adult Sunday school video lesson is provided in collaboration between the Foundry Publishing and NDI. The Sunday school lesson is intended to support the local church's efforts to make disciples who make disciples. Please feel free to use this video in any way that helps your church or its families. This is week five of a six-week series of lessons called Four World-Changing Days. We have slowed way down just like Mark did in his gospel, in order to look closely at those final four days of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As we begin our lesson for this week, the Roman soldiers had already flogged Jesus and mocked him by dressing him up in a royal royal robe, placing a crown of thorns on his head and saluting him as king of the Jews. Jesus was now on his way to Golgotha, where he would be crucified. A condemned person was forced to carry the horizontal beam to the crucifixion site, where there would be a stationary vertical beam to complete the cross for crucifixion. Jesus had been weakened by exhaustion from sleepless nights and endless mocking. And so brutalized by the flogging and beatings at the hands of the Sanhedrin and Roman soldiers, He needed help to carry his cross. That help came from a man named Simon of Cyrene. So let's start there with Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among uh, among themselves He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. 
Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. As the Roman soldiers took Jesus to the place of execution, they compelled a man named Simon to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was from Cyrene in Northern Africa. He must have been an immigrant to Jerusalem. According to Acts chapter nine, uh, chapter six, verse nine, there were Jews from Cyrene who lived in Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Mark mentioned that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's quite interesting that this information was given here. Why would Mark mention Alexander and Rufus? We can only speculate, but maybe Mark mentions them because they were a part of his Christian community. Let's take a step back from the text for a moment. One thing that's really special about the Church of the Nazarene is that we truly are a global family. If you have been a part of the Church of the Nazarene long, you likely know of our interconnectedness. It is truly special. You can meet someone in one church who's the second cousin of someone you know from your own church. Some have said our family connections help us avoid gossiping. You might just be talking to someone's brother and not know it. I remember Dr. James Deal once said, the Church of the Nazarene does not have a family tree. We have a wreath. We just keep marrying each other. <laughs> the early church in the first century AD was small. People knew each other and had connections to one another. Remember, the Gospel of Mark is the earliest gospel written dating back to the mid-60s AD. It's believed that the Apostle Peter was Mark's main source for his writing in this gospel account. Many scholars believe that Mark was part of the Christian community in Rome and heard Peter preach and teach many times there. Later, when the Apostle Paul wrote Romans, the letter to the church in Rome, he greeted a man named Rufus in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Could this Rufus have been one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene? If so, Rufus, the son of the man who carried Jesus' cross, would have come to believe and follow Jesus, would have likely fled Jerusalem due to persecution of the early believers, and ended up living among the Christian community in Rome. Rufus's stories of his dad, Simon, and Jesus on the day of his crucifixion would have been a convincing proof to the people living in Rome. One more quick comment about Simon of Cyrene. Simon's role in this unfolding drama is a powerful example of the moment in every believer's life when the cross of Jesus becomes our cross. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 records the words of Jesus to his followers, whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The place of execution was called Golgotha, an Aramaic word meaning the place of the skull. I was in Jerusalem this past January. Just outside the gates of the old city, there's a rock face that some believe may be Golgotha. The rock face has a unique feature that clearly looks like a skull still today. The rock face was along a main road that led directly to the gate entering Jerusalem. That means that people coming and going from Jerusalem would have looked up to this hill, this rock face, to see anyone being executed just outside the city. It was a warning to guests of the city to steer clear of any notion of insurrection against Rome. Verse 23 records that they, likely referring to the Roman soldiers, offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. This mixture was sometimes used to dull pain, but adding myrrh to wine made it undrinkable. This was probably part of the soldiers' continued mockery of Jesus, now tempting him to drink this mixture during his time of great thirst. You might remember what Jesus had said just hours before, recorded in Mark 14, 25, that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he would drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus refused the drink as he was determined to remain faithful and fully conscious as he accepted his suffering for the sake of all humanity. Mark chapter 15, verse 24, records the crucifixion of Jesus with the simple words, and they crucified him. Interestingly, while the English says they crucified him, past tense, the Greek verb for crucified is actually in the present tense in this verse. Scholars have come to call this kind of verb the historical present. According to the New American Standard Bible, where such verbs, historical present verbs, are noted by an asterisk, Greek authors frequently use the present tense for the sake of heightened vividness, thereby transporting their readers in imagination to the actual scene at the time of occurrence. We also learn in verse 24 that the soldiers dividing up Jesus' clothes, casting lots to see, to see what each other would get. This was not uncommon. Executioners often took the clothes and other sparse belongings of the victims, sometimes casting lots to determine who would receive them. Mark undoubtedly recognized this detail as a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22, verse 18, which says, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Mark chapter 15, verse 25 serves as a timestamp. You might remember that Jesus' trial with Pilate began at dawn, presumably 6 a.m. Mark revealed here that the crucifixion began at 9 a.m., the third hour in Jewish understanding. It would be noon, the sixth hour, when the sky would go dark, and three in the afternoon, the ninth hour, when Jesus would take his last breath. The charge against Jesus was that was the reason, according to the Roman authorities, that Jesus hung on the cross was written above Jesus, the king of the Jews, verse 26. This charge 
continued the sarcasm of the Roman authorities and stood as a warning to anyone who challenged the imperial power of Rome. On Jesus' right and left were hung criminals. Our minds might naturally go to James and John's request in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 40, where they asked James and John to sit on Jesus' right hand and left hand in his kingdom. This was not what James and John anticipated, and they were nowhere to be found during the crucifixion. At this point, you might notice that your Bible skips from verse 27 to 29. In other words, Mark 15, 28 is not there. The reason verse 28 is missing is that in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of Mark's gospel, the words of verse 28 are simply non-existent. Translations today will make note of such information in the text notes. The bystanders, those who passed by, scoffed at Jesus. They remembered Jesus' words recorded by John as Jesus stood in the temple courts at the beginning of his ministry. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus, of course, was referring to his body as the temple that would be destroyed and raised three days later. The bystanders called on Jesus to use all of that power that it would have destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild it in three days to simply bring Jesus down from the cross to save himself. Verse 30, we're reminded here again of Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. The chief priests and teachers of the law were not far behind the bystanders in their mocking of Jesus. They challenged Jesus in the same way, to come down from the cross that they might see and believe, verse 32. The call of the bystanders and the Jewish leaders was deeply ironic for Mark. In Mark 10, 45, Mark recorded Jesus' words, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In order to save others, Jesus must not and could not save himself. Jesus had taught his disciples to take up the cross, not come down from one. In obedience and submission to God's plan for the salvation of others, Jesus did not turn away from the cross. To top it all off, Mark records that not only the bystanders and not only the chief priests and the teachers of the law, but those crucified with Jesus also heaped insults at him. Mark chapter 15, verse 33, reveals that from noon to three on the day Jesus was crucified, there was darkness over the whole land. A number of Old Testament texts speak of darkness as a sign of God's judgment. You might remember that darkness was on Egypt prior to Israel's liberation. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 23 reads this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. 
No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all Israel, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. In Amos's day of the Lord, we find darkness. Amos chapter eight, verse nine says, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. At the height of Jesus' pain, Jesus ex exclaimed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark chapter 15, verse 34. It's shocking for Christian readers to imagine Jesus feeling forsaken by the Father. For his lifetime, Jesus had addressed God as Abba, Father. See Mark chapter 14, verse 36. These are like the words of a little child saying, Daddy, was it now in Jesus' greatest time of need impossible for Jesus to call God his Father? The obvious answer to that question is no. In fact, even when Jesus hung dying on the cross, he still prayed and spoke to the one whom he called my God. Jesus' words in verse 34 are a quote from the first line of Psalm 22, a lament psalm that the Jews would have known very well. Psalm 22 was, has obvious fulfillment through Jesus' crucifixion as described in Mark 15. Here are a few verses from this Old Testament lament psalm that speak of Jesus' time on the cross. Psalm 22, verses six through eight says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Psalm 22, verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Verses 16 to 18, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. And with the wonderful trust Jesus had in his father, he declared by faith in Psalm 22, verse 24, for the Lord has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Jesus' agonized cry reflected the intense suffering and dreadfulness caused by his full identification with sinful humanity. But it also reflected his confident hope of his father's vindication. Our passage for this week ends with two incredible events that mirror the opening of Mark's gospel. Let's reflect for a moment at the beginning of Mark. Mark's gospel begins with a proclamation that Jesus is the son of God. In fact, in the very first verse, Mark chapter one, verse one, it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. In the description of Jesus' baptism in verse 10 of chapter one, 
we find these words, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, torn open, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Note that we have a declaration of Jesus as the son of God and the tearing of something that separates God from humanity, in this case, the heavens. Now let's turn to the ending of Mark, our passage for this week. Like bookends, we find the two similar elements at the end of Mark's gospel. First, at the moment of Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple tore from into from top to bottom. This was a large and heavy curtain, approximately 32 feet high, that shielded the sanctuary from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was considered to be the location of God's actual presence. It could only be entered once a year by a single high priest on the Day of Atonement. This curtain, in essence, shielded the people from God's presence. The same Greek word for torn was used for heaven being torn open during Jesus' baptism and the curtain being torn from top to bottom at Jesus' death. Second, just as Mark's gospel opens with Jesus being declared the Son of God, so too at Jesus' crucifixion, we find a centurion taking uh, in all the events of Jesus' life and death and in the end declaring faith in Jesus. Mark chapter 15, verse 39 says, surely this man was the son of God. The tearing of heaven and the tearing of the curtain suggests that God's presence is now available to everyone. We can all be assured that this Jesus who was hanging on that cross was surely none other than the son of God. Here we are, at the week of Palm Sunday, 2023. We cannot forget the day Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem just five days before he went to the cross. Matthew chapter 21, verse nine, records the words of the people. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna is the Hebrew word for save. While it would appear that God's power and purposes were frustrated by the death of his son, Jesus, the ironic reality is that God's power and purposes were indelibly displayed and eternally established through the obedience of the son to the father. On that fateful day, Jesus became the mediator of salvation to all who would believe in him. Thank you for listening to the Faith Connections podcast. If you wish to order Faith Connection materials for your local church, please visit thefoundrypublishing.com. If you've enjoyed this production and wish to hear more, visit holinesstoday.org slash podcast or find us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts.